back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here All right, everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I am fantastic, Zach. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to talk about The River Wild, one of my favorites. Oh, me too! One of my guilty pleasure Meryl Streep movies, and also one that held up in a really strange way this time. So, uh, we'll right? s- yeah, it, this one is a little different than I remembered when I was viewing it critically rather than just for fun. Oh, some things stuck out a little bit. But um, <laughs> before we get into that, what have you been up to lately? What have you been seeing? What have you been enjoying in New York? Still doing the school thing, working on getting uh, an internship for the summer, interviewing, doing all that jet. I, um, you know, it's been. The theater stuff is just now sort of picking up, sort uh-huh. of in a lull over the over the holiday and then January and February, and now shows are opening, you know, coming up to that Tony Award cutoff date. So um, things are picking back up. I saw I saw Hillary and Clinton with Laurie Metcalf and John Lithgow. I want to hear all about that one. I'm so interested in hearing about that. You know, it was really fascinating. Laurie Metcalf is such a freaking powerhouse yeah she's amazing she's really amazing for, for those of you who kind of recognize her name or not sure who she is she she plays Roseanne's sister on Roseanne which I think is probably her most prominent role but she is a wildly successful Tony winning stage actress and um, she's fantastic in this I mean she really is the highlight yeah it was an interesting the play itself was interesting it was just a cast of four Okay. And I thought what they did best about it, um, the playwright, the, the playwright's choice is that, you know, they didn't have to impersonate Hillary and Bill. The nice. way the way he structured the script, it was a Hillary and a Bill in some universe, and that sounds really ridiculous out of context, but it worked quite well in that they didn't have to bother. Nice. So they got to really focus on the, you know, the dynamics of the relationship. And, you know, it, it, set, it set in the 2008 primary. Oh, nice. Uh, when she, yeah, when she was running against Obama. And uh, it was interesting. It was really interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'd recommend it for sure. Nice. I love that also. is phenomenal. Yeah. Everybody in it was. I'm, I'm so... Uh, interested in seeing that like you say i actually feel like the description of it you know not being an impression is so important and makes it so much more interesting to me um i so do, much more yeah i i don't think it's weird to make that decision at all i think that is the right decision to make it's that like thinly veiled have you ever seen the movie primary colors yes okay. so good it's amazing and it's you know it's actually got some Merrill connections because it's a mike nichols directed movie um and emma thompson plays like a version of hillary and john travolta plays a version of bill clinton and it's that sort of like 
they weren't playing Bill and Hillary exactly, but there were so many things that were similar and it just worked amazingly. That's a really underrated movie. Um, And I don't know. There are just so many things that you can do when it's not a biopic exactly. It's a version of something, you know? Yeah, when you're not locking yourself down to that. Right, right. Yeah. And they're just, both of them, I've seen both of them on, on stage too, and they're both, you know, such amazing actors too that like, you know, letting them have, letting them have the ability to make choices instead of feel trapped by trying to do an impression, I think probably opens it up for better performances, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, they were both so strong. Yeah. What else did you see? Yeah. Or have you seen lately, I mean? Um, gosh. Uh, not a lot. I saw, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in our last podcast. I saw a great, a great play at, um, New York theater workshop called Hurricane Diane. And, uh, it's about the God, uh, the God Dionysus sort of coming back and making an effort to reclaim the earth and to do it. Um, he needs, um, he, he essentially needs, or she needs, essentially needs to convert these these four New Jersey housewives. And uh, it, it really is, it, it was pretty fantastic. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then film-wise, you know, oh, I have not seen a lot. I I did just watch last night, actually, this movie out on Netflix with Woody Harrelson and Kevin Costner yeah. about sort of the, the law side of touching Bonnie and Clyde called Highwaymen. How was that? I've been curious. I've seen the preview, but I haven't watched the film yet. You know what? I, I, I really enjoyed it. Did you? Good. I really enjoy them. I do too. Um, it's a very, it's a surprisingly quiet movie because it really just focuses on the two of them trying to find Bonnie and Clyde. Um, it was an interesting it's an interesting script in that you get you get none of Bonnie and Clyde's story. Like everything you get about them is through the lens of these two ex Texas Rangers, who they sort of brought out of retirement to chase them down. And so you don't ever personally connect with Bonnie and Clyde, which I think was the purpose. There's so much folklore and films about them, and um, I think the movie was obviously taking an opposite approach, but Woody Harrelson and Kevin Costner have great chemistry. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I like, I like both of them too. I was trying to, um, I was trying to think because I actually saw, I didn't, I didn't actually watch it, but I saw this thing on IMDb the other day where in an interview, uh, somebody asked Woody Harrelson about the last time that he'd been in a movie with Kevin Costner, and Woody Harrelson was like, I've never been in a movie with Kevin Costner before. And allegedly they remind him that they actually had been in a movie before that Woody Harrelson had completely forgotten about. And, oh my God, that's hilarious. Uh, and so I can't, I can't figure out what the movie would have been, because like I said, I didn't watch the clip, but... Um, yeah, anyway, I'm curious about that movie. And when I saw the preview, it looked good. Um, yeah. I think I told you the story of when I got to open for Kevin Costner and his band. And it was one of the stranger experiences that I've ever had. But Costner himself was very nice to me. And so I've taken, like, more kind than um, the, like, main act usually is to the support act. Like, he was very, very uh-huh. kind. And so I've ever since that, I've kind of felt like, uh, you know... 
uh, affection for him. He's, you know, he really was, I, I just really thought he paid a lot of attention to his fans. He was out signing autographs for the, for a really long time and just was so kind to everybody. And everybody was, I mean, like I've never seen grown adults act around another famous person the way they did around Kevin Costner. I mean, it was like, really? they revered him. Now this, the show that we did was in Iowa and that's where Field of Dreams was. So I think there's some oh. like significant attachment to him because of that. But yeah. I, it was a little strange, a little creepy how like people, like grown adults were like weeping just to be in his presence. It was really strange. I have never really understood that kind of connection to uh, celebrity, like really loving and idolizing someone so much that you feel like you know that, like you're so driven, like you're going to stand outside and scream, like that kind of fandom. Right. I mean, I I have actors, performers, singers, musicians that I hear and love. Would I like to meet them? Yeah, sure. Am I also aware that it might be extremely anticlimactic because they're just human beings like me? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there is that 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 sort of fan club mentality that really fascinates me. Yeah. Yeah. Like I kind of wonder what it feels like. Well, I've never had it. Right. That's <laughs> the thing. Is that's that's what I've always found too. Because you know when you have the opportunity, as you have, I mean, you've met famous people before, but, you know, yeah. I always try to keep it in mind when I meet celebrities for, for one reason or another. For them, it's not really exciting. For you, it's super exciting. And for them, it sometimes is nice, depending upon how the interaction goes. I've had interactions with famous people where I've thought like, okay, they enjoyed the conversation we just had, you know, as brief as it was or whatever. But, it, you know, it wasn't awkward. At least it was kind of, you know... It was, it was fine. But most of the time, it's a very one-sided um, exchange. And there's something about that that feels, I don't know, very strange. And like you say, yeah. there there are certain people that would be amazing. I mean, obviously, Meryl Streep is up there. Like, if, if we ever had the opportunity oh, yeah. to meet Meryl Streep, I probably wouldn't be able to be a normal person uh, around her. Yeah, I might, fa- I might fangirl out around her. That's actually true. Yeah. But- I, I don't know if I... I, don't know if I- Dreaming, but I'd probably be useless. That's really cool. Right. You're so great. But, <laughs> Excuse me while I go collect myself. Right. But then there are other people who you realize, and, you know, it's a lot of times it's figuring out what the connection is. So I have um, a singer-songwriter person who had, a friend of mine now, but somebody who had a lot, 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 lot of success. And one thing I learned about her was like, you know, if you talk to her about her, her work, She's not really that interested. But if you talk to her about her kid or, you know, her her home or, you know, like just ordinary everyday things, she's yeah. so much more present with you. And she's such a more like normal human being. And you realize, you know, if you're if you're asked so constantly about your work, I don't know, there's it's very transactional. Again, it goes back to that thing of, you know, they want something from you, but you're not really getting giving them anything in return other than love and affection. I don't know. It's a strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I will say, I did see one more thing that came out on Netflix. Okay. Triple Frontier. Oh, I haven't heard of that. heard of this? No, what is it? Okay. So it's Oscar Isaac, who's got, you know, a pretty hefty resume. Uh Ben Affleck. 
Oh, yeah. I have seen this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Charlie Hunnam, Garrett Hunsland, Pedro Pascal. That's, like, the main. Um, oh, God. It was... I'm sorry, guys. It was so bad. Was it really? I mean, I couldn't even... I was just really surprised by the level of badness. Yeah, especially with... Especially with the people involved. Like, I... Um, and it didn't feel like, honestly, it didn't feel like an editing problem or like a rewrite. You know when you can kind of see, when you watch a film that doesn't work, you can kind of see they must have had trouble, they must have been like trying to do rewrites, they had trouble in the editing room, they didn't get the reshoots they needed, but you can kind of see that. Yeah. It didn't feel like that. Huh. Um, and so I'm not quite sure I'm not quite I'm not quite sure what happened it couldn't decide what it was at first it was like a a uh, for lack of a better comparison almost like Narcos where Oscar Isaac is in South America he's been chasing this drug lord for years nobody can ever find where he is he finally finds his location and he needs a trusted team to help him go get this guy it then turns into like a commentary on retired, um, you know, American paramilitary groups and how they're treated, uh, you know, just sort of discarded. And then it turns into, like, a heist movie where they make really bad choices and some die, and then it ends. Huh. <laughs> it was a lot. Wow. Um, yeah, I was I was sort of shocked. Well, I feel like, um, like I said, I didn't recognize it by the title, but when you started talking about it, I remembered hearing about it. I've been curious about that movie, actually, because I feel like when that movie was close to wrapping production, there was a lot of uh-huh. buzz about it. I think there was a lot of, like, excitement about it for one reason or another. There was. And... For some reason, you know, for probably the reasons you were just talking about, when it was released, it was very under the radar. It was not, Netflix is now known for like going all out for some of its prestige things. And I don't think they put a ton of money into this. So I assume that you are probably exactly right about, you know, something is not quite working on it if if they're not getting the, you know, like you say, with the talent involved, they would have gone all in on something like that otherwise. Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, to the point where the character arcs were completely inconsistent. That's too like bad. Like, they set up, like, Ben Affleck's character, they set him up, you kind of know who he is, and, and, but then, you know, halfway through the movie, he's making very bold choices that are absolutely against character. Well, that's too bad. You never, you know, you never like the movie to go completely off the rails. That's too no. bad. No. I am curious to check it out now. I don't know what it is, but sometimes when I hear that, I'm more interested to check out the movie than I might have otherwise been. So I work in a weird way. So is this... It is an interesting study. Okay. For sure. So is it a fun... Is it a fun bad movie or is it just kind of a waste of time bad movie? I mean, I've got to tell you, I got to the last half hour. My sister and I were watching it together, but she was in New Mexico and I was here in New York. So we were basically texting each other while we were watching this thing. Uh-huh. And um, and to the last, we got to the last half hour and I just, she's like, it's okay, I'll watch the rest for us. I mean, 
they are they were clearly very experienced ex-military and they via the script make the worst most ridiculous decisions and that is hard for me to watch like personally i don't like watching movies where people make very bad decisions Right. Over and over and over again, especially when they should know better character-wise, and they didn't really set it up in any way where you could justify the bad decision, that they were somehow compelled, or it just wasn't there. So, actually, that maybe is a decent transition into the only thing that I've seen <laughs> is yeah. just about the worst thing that I've seen. It's I, I didn't see it in the theater, but... Um, the recent Jennifer Lopez movie, Second Act. Have you heard of I this? I wanted to see that so badly. It is. Okay, so I'm, I, there's there's more to this story. I, this is not something that I would have ordinary. I don't mean to sound dismissive of this. I'm sure there were wonderful people involved. And um, Leah Remini is in it, and I really think she's yes. good. And so I was kind of curious about it because of that. Uh, and there's yes. a couple people in the supporting cast, too, that was like, okay. And... Uh, it is the first movie that I can think of in, I, I don't even know how long, that about 40 minutes in, I was like, screw this. I am not watching this. This is horrific. Really? It was some, I mean, it's one of those things that I can't really say much about it without giving it away, but it makes this just, just gigantic, unbelievable coincidence it it expects you to just believe that this is happenstance that this thing happens and you're just going are you uh, there's no way this is it's so beyond the realm of possibilities so i just couldn't and it was just it wasn't fun you know it was just kind of it, it had like every I don't know. You know, I, I'm not a fan of the the term like chick flick. I think that's kind of dismissive. And but there are things about that genre, this like romantic comedy thing that are cliches that I thought we were kind of past, basically. And yeah. this movie has every single one of them in it in a way that is just so lazy and so... It's just maddening when you see it, and you and you realize how much movie, how much money was pumped into this, and you're there's just no creativity involved, and it's just cookie cutter, and it's just the most generic thing. I think I would rather watch something that that had a point of view and maybe missed the ball for one reason or another than something that is generic. That is the thing that bothers yeah. me, and that is what that movie is. Just so so openly and so obviously it was really frustrating i couldn't take it so i turned it off uh it's so depressing and i have to say that i just inexplicably love j-lo i love her i think she is a phenomenal businesswoman like as a as a as a professional i really admire her yeah. The way she diversified, the way nothing really touches her. Like, she can make a movie like Second Act, and it bombs. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. I don't I don't know many stars who can do that. Right. And not have their, you know, their viability go down considerably. I just feel like nothing touches her. It's really amazing. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think she's, I think she's good, too. I don't really, I don't know. Have you ever she seen? She better. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Um, 
one movie that is extremely again it goes back to the primary colors thing it's actually the same time period it might even be the same year um that movie she did with george clooney called out of sight it was when yeah, she was so fir- great so good i feel like we maybe have even talked about that movie on this podcast before but you know she's so good in it and i guess it was before maybe she was a gigantic star you know i feel like that yeah. was maybe on her way up but um she's she is by no means without talent she is a very talented person um it's just this movie was so frustrating but um so before we get into the main attraction here this is the first time you and i have spoken since the oscars did you get to watch did you have any opinions on the show um oh gosh i've slept since then i was uh oh you know what i can't i can't pass judgment on a lot because i didn't see everything i was a little disappointed that green book won oh yeah i think a lot of people were i think a lot of people were i think that was a general consensus that that was a mistake um um i was so excited and that olivia coleman won were you i i just thought that performance was insane i was I was disappointed for Glenn Close, though. Right. My God, this woman's career is just insane. And, um, you know, she's so talented. Yeah. But, yeah, that was sort of, that was the crazy upset of the night for me, I think. I was really surprised. I think I think a lot of people were. I read, you know, one of those kind of dumb clickbait articles the next day about, you know, 10 things you missed at the Oscars, things like that, where they were talking about things that happened in the room that, you know, people watching at home didn't get to see and whatever. And um, one of them was they said there was a significant audible reaction of shock and oh my gods and all of that when Olivia Coleman won because it was oh, wow. really, really assumed it was going to go to Glenn Close. Um, so... I don't know. I'm with you. I, I I talked about it a little bit in a couple episodes that, to me, she was amazing in The Wife. I also felt like it was not the kind of performance that the Academy Awards tends to go for. It was a, it was a quiet wow. performance. Um, and Olivia Coleman's was not a quiet performance. It was a big no. performance. And so, I don't know. I suspected they were going to go for Lady Gaga, actually. Um and then Glenn Close kind of won a bunch of other awards, so I thought maybe she might actually pull it out. But um, it's hard to fault them. It was just one of those years where really all five of the women were amazing. You know, it, it really yeah. all top to bottom. Melissa McCarthy was great too. Um, yeah. You know, there was there was talent there in all in all of them. So. Um, I feel like there would be something kind of amazing because, you know, I think the next one that she's doing, it sounds like they're moving close on Sunset Boulevard. They've attached a director to it now. And, um, you know, so if they actually make that movie, I feel like there'd be something kind of wonderful about her finally winning it for that to me. Oh, I agree. So, full circle. That'd be cool. Yeah. So maybe there's maybe there's something there. Um, it is that whole thing. It's got to be just really rough to be Glenn Close on that night. You know, it's just, oh, it's everybody. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where she knows everybody loves her, but it's still just, she just can't quite get there no matter what. It's got to be so frustrating. But um, yeah. yeah, I think everything else kind of went the way it was expected to go. There were no giant surprises. How did you feel about the no host thing? I liked it. 
It was a relief. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have minded. I mean, I love Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph. I wouldn't have minded just having the three of them up there the whole time. But, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just felt there was a lightness to it that there hasn't been in previous years. And I don't know if that's because, you know, whoever agrees to host that poor person is carrying the weight of a thousand negative reviews from previous hosts. Right. Um, there's just so much attached to it that I just don't ever feel like, I feel like it's a doomed thing. Yeah. And the ceremony did feel lighter for it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So no Meryl, you know, no Meryl uh, appearances or anything. So there's nothing, I guess, I guess we knew that. Um, I guess, yeah. I guess the big news since we last talked, because I think at the time we knew it was happening soon, but Meryl is a grandmother for the first time. Oh yeah. Mamie had a baby, right? Mamie had a baby. Yeah. I can't remember if it's a boy or a girl, but um, anyway, so congrats. I did start watching um, uh, uh, the third season of True Detective. Oh yeah. And Mamie's in Um, that, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And she's great. I've, I've heard she was really good. That show is, um, of course, very divisive. <laughs> there, you yeah. know, The first season was so, so widely loved. The second season, so widely hated. Um, yeah. And my perception of it, because I haven't watched any of the third season yet, um, I'm, I'm excited to, but my perception was for a long time, you know, as this season got going, everybody was kind of excited and thinking, oh, they got it back on track. But I feel like it kind of, petered out maybe towards the end i feel like people kind of were unsatisfied towards the end but maybe that is not correct i don't know yeah i don't know i'm only uh i'm only one episode in oh okay. i i uh i haven't continued i find that so i'm a i'm a true crime fanatic uh-huh. and uh and i i also like watching the like, crime thrillers um so true detective first season at least I loved yeah but I I think I've reached I think I've reached my capacity for stories where children have gone missing and or are violently murdered like I I can't I can't do it anymore not in documentaries not in just it's awful yeah (laughs) and I've reached my personal capacity and uh so I'd like I put a pause on the uh, crime thriller and true crime thing just to like give my spirit some rest. Yeah. Can't say I blame you for that. And um, speaking of, I know we really have to get to River Wild here, although this is kind yeah. of this is kind of what we do at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody expects it. They expect <laughs> us to ramble. But have you watched the Abducted in Plain Sight thing on Netflix? Oh, God, yes. I'm only... That was sort of one of the things that hit me over the edge. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. I I have heard so much about how insane it is. And I have to say, I'm probably 20 minutes in, so I am not far into it at all. But it is some of the most mind-blowing stuff. It's like that Michael Jackson horrifying documentary about him. I don't know if you've seen any of that, the Leaving Neverland stuff. Nope. It, I couldn't do it. I don't think, yeah, it's, it sounds like in the place you're at right now, that might not be a good choice <laughs> watching that yeah. one. Um, but... It is just mind blowing how how naive some parents are and how um, gullible some people are. It just makes you. 
I don't know. I, there's a part of me too that wonders if these things are really good to put out there because it just, it seems like it's so easy, you know? I mean, is that a strange position to take? But I, I watch these things saying, this is encouraging other people to like try some stuff because these are people who got away with things that are just mind boggling. You know, it is oh, yeah. insane. I was starting to worry about what we're presenting as, you know, like realistic options for people with bad intentions. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh yeah. It's so. horrible. Anyway. It's um, horrible. Yeah. The naivete was really astounding and frustrating. Yeah. Well, speaking of marginal abuse to children, let's transition yes. into the River Wild, shall it. we? <laughs> he gets he gets slapped, so you know we can we can do that. Um, yeah, do you want to give us a plot synopsis of this one? Um, yes. Okay. So Meryl Streep uh, is a, a water aficionado. She was a rafter in her a raft guide. A river raft guide in her youth and a rower and she is married to David Strathairn and they have two children and they live in where do they live? I th- it's <laughs> I thought it was like I don't know it seemed like Vermont or something I'd, oh no Boston 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 thank yes. you they live in Boston and they are they take a river rafting trip with their son Rourke for his birthday and as they head off down the river, they meet a suspect group of dudes, John C. Riley in his youth, crazy, yep. Kevin Bacon, and a guy named Frank, <laughs> yes. who is their guide. And um, lo and behold, it turns out they are very bad dudes who have robbed a cattle auction and are escaping near the river. And they take their family hostage and trouble ensues. Yeah. Nicely done. So, as is always the case, I think we should talk about this movie. Kind of, you know, like if you haven't watched this movie and are concerned about spoilers, it's this is a hard one to talk about without kind of going there. So, um, you yeah, know, if you're, I agree. If you're concerned about prepared for spoilers, yeah, spoilers might be happening in this one. So just kind of know that. Maybe go watch the movie and come back if you're concerned. Um, so what I know you've seen this before. We've talked about this. This is maybe one of our kind of first experiences with Meryl for both of us. It was my, I think, actual first movie with Meryl. It was the first one I saw in the theaters with her for sure. Um, so what was your kind of first attachment to this movie and how did it hold up this time? Um, I saw it. I saw it in the theater. I loved it. It's been a family staple for us for a long time. Like we had it on Kickass. Uh, it never gets old. I haven't watched it in years, so I was revisiting it for the first time in a while. Uh, definitely the first time with a critical eye rather than a, oh, I'm so nostalgic about this. Right. Uh, and I had I had been exposed to Meryl Streep a lot earlier than this. Like, which is scary. What year was this movie? 94. 94. Okay, so I was 12. I was 12 when it came out, and I had already seen, like, Out of Africa and Kramer vs. Kramer. Right. Uh, which is hilarious. Like, yeah. I don't know what anyone under 12 is doing watching other movies. <laughs> um, um, so I was already a fan. I already liked her. I gotta tell you, like, watching with a critical eye, the movie is not perfect nope (laughs) but i love this movie so damn much like i 
love it. I enjoyed watching it so much. <laughs> I just really love it. I do too. I feel exactly the same way. Um, were, was there anything that stuck out to you? Okay, let's talk about that like critical thing. Now that we're on the record as like, this is just a fun movie. Um, yeah. It's Meryl's really only kind of only uh, entry in the thriller, like for sure the adventure, I think, category. Um, but yeah. in the thriller, Manchurian Candidate is kind of in the thriller category too. Um, I don't know. There might be one or two others. Rendition is maybe in there. There are a couple others that are like borderline on the thriller side. But um, this is like, I don't know. She is such a badass in this movie with the with the rowing and knowing she did most of her own stunts um, I think that's what makes it so good, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Is that they're going down the river and they have these wide angle shots, and you can tell it's her. Right. And and I questioned that when I first watched it again. I was like, my God, I don't think that's stunt woman. And right. then I went digging and found that she had done all of the, as she learned to navigate class four rapids. That's right. insane. I don't think an actor could ever do that now with the insurance requirements i I don't think i think the insurance would be so astronomical i don't think they'd let them yeah well and that's what i was trying to figure out actually because this this comes in a really interesting time period for her because in the early 90s i i feel like the 90s are maybe her most interesting decade in terms of like the movies she was making and the questions of whether or not these were choices or basically like the best offers that she was getting. I think she was still probably getting for the most part, the best offers, you know, for in her her age group anyway. But, you know, she had in the early nineties done all these comedies. She did she devil death becomes her defending your life postcards from the edge, like all in a row. And then, you know, so like these kind of light movies after the eighties where she was kind of viewed as like making these very serious movies. She, she did these four comedies in a row, kind of changed her perception a little bit. Then did the house of the spirits, which we did previously on this podcast, which is not funny at all. And is like one of the darkest movies in her entire filmography. And then does this afterwards. And then after this, the bridges of Madison County. And I mean, like how about those three movies in a row, like the house of the spirits, the river wild and the bridges of Madison County. You want to talk about one person's one actor's range in the span of a year and a half or however long it took to, to film those three movies. It's astonishing that that's one person. And like you say, in the meantime, she became such a skilled rafter that she was able to do. I mean, she never, it's, it's kind of like learning how to play the violin for music of the heart or learning how to speak fluent, you know, languages for God knows how many movies it's like, she doesn't fake it. She's going to do it. And so there was a part of me that wondered, because Mamie is about our age, your years of my age, she would have been, you know, 10, Mm -hmm. 11, 12, somewhere in there, probably. Um, and her other daughters would have been a little bit younger. Do you think there was any kind of thought process in her mind of like, I want to make a movie that stars, a, you know, it's like an action movie that stars a woman in her 40s who's kind of a badass. And, you know, do you think she she made this movie with any thoughts of I'm going to like show my daughters that this is, you know, be a good role model here? I don't know. I mean, uh, I would assume so. I mean, I would assume that she read that script and thought, yeah, this woman is fantastic. 
And I did find a little clip of her. I thought, I think it's really the only interview uh, that I could find on YouTube related to this film specifically that she really did think that she'd be like doing, you know, fake shots, you know, somebody shaking the boat. She just assumed she'd have a stunt double. I think she was sort of taken by surprise uh, what was actually asked of her. Uh, but yeah, I would assume that I would assume that played into her decision making. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was just a thought that I had as I was as I was watching it this time. Is just kind of how how badass she was. You know, she really was. It it's oh, such a badass. It's <laughs> to me. It's kind of disappointing um, in some ways that. The movie ends, like the last line in the movie is the, I, I think it was the police officer was asking the kid, um, Joseph Mazzello, you know, yeah. what did your dad do while all this was going on? And the last line in the movie, I think, is him saying, he saved our lives. That yeah. kind of bugged me because it was yes. like. It totally negates the entire film. Right. Because she yeah. did everything. I mean, not everything. He did do, he played an important role. But she played a much more significant role. And to end it on, he saved our lives, as that, like, reinforcing last line just kind of bugged me a little bit. That was not the way yeah. this movie should have ended. No. I do have to say that I remember when I saw this in the theater, um, I, I really loved it. I was 12. I really loved it. And I could I couldn't tell you why I really loved it at the time. In retrospect, especially having watched it again just now, I I really wanted to be her. Oh, nice. She was so strong and fit and awesome and powerful. And I just, like, she was, honestly, for me, she was my first action hero. Like, little girls are watching Captain Marvel, like, I watched Meryl Streep in this and just thought, oh, my God, she is such a badass. Yeah. You know, and that, uh, I hope that went into her decision-making when she chose the role because it certainly had an impact on me as a young, at, at a young age. Right. And uh, I'm sure other, I'm sure other women, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I still want to be a river rafter because of her. I mean, not really. But, like, I want to be able to do that. <laughs> well, and it was funny because when I got to college, I um, I uh, I rode crew at Lawrence. Oh, did you really? Season. I didn't know that. Yeah. So when I got to Lawrence as a freshman, I went and I saw our theater advisor and I said, so I need to get all of my required credits out of the way, so I'm not doing any theater. I'll see you next year. And he was like, um, okay. <laughs> So I did zero theater as a freshman. Okay. I knew I'd get to it, and I played tennis. I wrote crew. I I did all kinds of stuff, and I did no theater. Huh. Okay. And it was awesome. And I would have I would have kept rowing, but um, yeah, it always made me think of that scene at the top of the movie where she it, the the film really does set up so well, like you know who these people are immediately. She's on the river. There's no dialogue. She's rowing. And the music sets it up where she is rowing against the clock to go under a bridge before the train goes over. Right. And she set that deadline for herself. 
you know that she's motivated and totally competitive with herself and a perfectionist. Like, you know that immediately. It's like, this is so great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of Lawrence, uh, I, yeah. it, it has been brought to my attention and I have a horrible memory as you may or may not know. And so I'm wondering if you can confirm this because I'm guessing at some point or another over the years, you were probably at my room at some point. Um, Uh It has occurred to me or it has been told to me that I had a poster of the river wild in my room. Can you confirm or deny this? Do you have any memory of this? You know, now that you say that I have some vague memory of a river wild poster, but I can't confirm it 100%. I I don't remember this at all. Um, it is entirely possible. I co-host a Meryl Street podcast, so it is possible that I had a River Wild poster. <laughs> right. But I mean, we were talking about Meryl all the way back then. Yeah, we were gushing about her then. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where I would have gotten. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where I would have gotten a River Wild poster. But um, okay, I was just curious about that because that struck me as strange that um, that I would have had that of all the movies that I would have had the river wild, although I do love the movie um, and that I would have no memory of it. So, but it's neither here nor there in the scheme of things. I was pretty cool during my Lawrence years. I have to say, I mean, oh, weren't we all? <laughs> it's, it's really a shame, you know, to have peaked so early in life, I think. Um, so let's see what else. Um, okay. As long as you brought up the score, I have to say that is one thing that when I was looking at it a little bit more critically, the score really bugged me this time. Are you with me on that at all? Yes. It it's w- just entire, an entirely different musical language. Like music now and built so much more nuanced. This was like a slap in the face. Right. <laughs> I think I think you're right. I think it, it is a '90s thing in particular. Well, '80s and '90s because like it, it was too synthy. It was very synthesized y and it was just yeah. There are a couple times where it was, and I like got the fact that they were doing a riff on the song "The Water Is Why" that was like the recurring theme throughout the whole yeah. thing, but. I just am not convinced we needed to hear that one song so many times and so loudly and so kind of distractingly throughout the whole thing. I will tell you that. um, So really, I mean, pre-MP3s, pre-streaming, pre-everything, like you couldn't, soundtracks were big, but you couldn't, couldn't really get soundtracks all the time like i'd have to go to my local cd store and the chances of having the river wild soundtrack were like next to none and i didn't have the internet right so i i would set up my tape recorder next to the tv and tape songs i liked from movies i did that too yeah yeah and i distinctly remember taping the water is ride from the end of the river wild like sitting there by the tv because i love I love The Water is Wide. Yeah. But yeah, like, the first thing I realized watching it critically, like, it picks up at the top of the movie, I think it's the first time you really hear it. And I was like, oh, this is just a little off the nose. Little. Yeah. Little much. Well, <laughs> and there was, I. it is kind of, well, there are there are a few things that are very well known about this. I'm sure we'll get to one of the big ones in a minute. But they, um, there was another composer named Maurice... I, I think it's Jari, it's J-A-R-R-E, um, who actually okay. did a film score for this movie. But I guess that tested really poorly, and so they replaced that entire score with Jerry Goldsmith's, which is the one that's actually in the movie. 
And oh, so the, yeah, the thought occurred to me that it might have been a somewhat late thing. Like they might have need to, you know, the score is one of the last things done on a movie usually. So um, yeah. it's if that was scrapped and kind of redone, that maybe there was a reason it was a little bit less polished than maybe you would expect it to be. So it might have been as simple as that, but there were still just kind of basic level problems in terms of, again, it just seems so overbearing and so it, it reminded too me much. Of the, it reminded me of the music from A Few Good Men, and I meant to mm. look to see if they were the same, and I did not yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you want to talk about, I, I think you know what I'm talking about with the other kind of very famous thing about this uh because you sent me a link to an article, which I, I read part of the whole thing yeah. with Curtis Hansen. You want to go into this? This is, I think, for people who know the River Wild, this is like the thing that people know about it. But um, we should mention it for sure. So this movie was directed by Curtis Hansen. Um, he also directed L.A. Confidential. It was a few years later, so this was sort of on his rise. Right. I guess they were filming one day and they were running late and they were doing like probably way too many takes and uh, they were doing a shot of Meryl Streep coming down a certain rapid and I, like a camera dislodged or something they lost the shot and so he wanted her to do it again and she said no I'm exhausted and he pushed her to do it again she did it again she fell out of the boat and she almost drowned um not drowned, obviously, and they called it a night, and she did the shot again the next day, and he is quoted as saying, like, you know, I saw everything flash before my eyes, and I'm so lucky that she didn't die. I'm like, you're an asshole. Right. Well, (laughs) and that is the sort of thing where, you know, he, it's probably the looking back on it. I would love to kind of know how their relationship was before and after that and the from the sounds of it because i've i've read a bit i never have seen if there was any sort of um interview with either one of them about this particular incident but you know like you said he he's on record as saying you know his whole career flashed before him his whole life he thought you know he was going to be known as the guy who who killed meryl streep and um you know he'd never get work again and all of that and but he also was very complimentary of her and and said something like yeah. you know she showed up the next day and you know like he would have totally understood if she was like no I'm not doing that shot at all but she showed up the next day after almost dying um and did the shot again the next day just when she had had rest and was able to kind of like be present for you know uh, I mean, prepared, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is why this is why these situations are so insidious. Is that you know they? Uh, I don't know what their working relationship was before this. I'm sure it was great. I'm sure it was fine. So you have somebody that you consider a peer, a creative collaborator with you, really the shot, and you don't think of it on a power dynamic level. You think this, you know, this guy that I respect and I'm exhausted. I don't think I have an itch, but my God, I'm going to disappoint everybody if I don't do it. Right. And so that pressure leads you to do it, and then you almost die, and what choice do you have as an actress? Um, I mean, you can throw a fit and be a, quote, diva, and then what does that do to your reputation? Right. Somebody's almost killed you, but if you don't step up and just, 
you know, take it on the chin and go about your business, um, you potentially get blacklisted. So it's a really catch-22 for, for actors who are put in this situation. And I don't think it just happens to women. I think it happens to men as well. And yeah. um, it really, it's a completely different culture now. Um, I just think it speaks to today and that filmmakers, directors, and producers in particular need to be very, very mindful of that power dynamic and what they're asking somebody to do and what the consequences are. Yeah. Because I don't think that happens historically. Right. Well, and like you say, I think things have changed enough at this point that, you know, I don't I don't know that a director would probably get away with that at this point. There's just so much. I mean, maybe they would. Who knows? It, you know, you hear about crazy stuff all the time. But at the same time, now that things are so widely reported, you know, we have so much yeah. more access to news. I feel like that kind of stuff, they would just have to be careful because it would get out. You know, like that would have been a lead story on you know, all of the entertainment websites and stuff for sure. But it also would have, you know, been national news on, you know, basic media platforms like CNN.com and Yahoo.com and all of that stuff, you know, that would have been up there. So, um, you know, like you say, I don't know if they would have gotten away with it. Yeah. The director Curtis Hanson had a really interesting career as, as you mentioned before we started filming, I didn't know this, but he died a couple of years ago in 2016. Um, he his kind of first i don't know his first movie that i recognize is a tom cruise movie called losing it which came out in 83 and he did a couple other movies in the 80s but right before the river wild he did the hand that rocks the cradle in 92 which was a pretty so big great. hit yeah and so that was kind of what afforded him the opportunity to do the river wild um and then after that he hit probably his creative peak with la confidential but he did a couple other really interesting ones. He did Wonder Boys in 2000 with um, Michael Douglas and some other folks. Um, Eight Mile. This is the man who directed Eight oh, Mile. Yeah. I with, forgot about that. With Eminem, In Her Shoes with Cameron Diaz, um, and just a few other ones. So like a really varied career. Right? You know, how often does somebody go from the River Wild to Eight Mile? <laughs> it's just right? uh, interesting. But um, so in addition to Meryl, this is... One of the things that I love about this movie is it feels like the cast list for this entire movie is about 10 people. There's very few significant roles in this movie. You know, it's really small. Um, But, you know, David Strathairn is the husband. He's just one of my favorite actors. I was thinking the other day, you know, if I could have one like male actor's career, it might be David Strathairn's because he's just oh, one of, I agree. He's just one of those people who's been doing such quality work and on a somewhat I like I don't know. I, I think this is maybe not how most people would view it. But this guy got to work with Meryl Street multiple times, with Sissy Spacek multiple times, with Jessica Lang. You know, like he worked with everybody. He got directed by Clooney. He got direct you know, like directed by the best. He got to work with the best. He got some really great roles, but also can probably walk down the street and be himself most days, you know, like it's a really remarkable career for him. What did you think of him in this particular role and performance and all of that? Oh, I love him in this part. I think he, he's so fantastic. You know, I thought about this when I was watching it. I sort of wondered what the script looks like on paper. It would be so 
easy to make his character just sort of so weak that yeah. you're not interested. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And God, he's just phenomenal. I have felt like for a long time that David Strathairn is the male Meryl Streep. Really? And he has not gotten, I don't think, the same level of notoriety. Oh, yeah. But he is as prolific. And I find, I find his series, I find his performances varied. Uh, I think you watch him in something like Dolores Claiborne, and he is nasty. I know. He's so creepy in that movie. He's so creepy. And then you watch him in this, and you're just absolutely in love with him. Like, come on, Meryl Streep, throw the guy a bone. Right. He's like working so hard to be perfect for you. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so I just find whatever he does, he does it uh, immaculately. Yeah, he's great. He's really underrated, really, really a wonderful actor. He's just one of those people who, like, like I guess we've said now, I probably don't need to re-articulate it, but he's just been doing great work for so long and it seems like such a shame i remember the year i feel like he was i should look this up i feel like he was maybe nominated for good night and good luck i think that was he was okay but i think that's probably the only time and i feel like there was i could be you know this is probably just looking back on something that um you know was maybe (laughs) i might be perceiving this completely wrong but i feel like he was one of those people who when he was up for it there were a lot of people that kind of really wanted him to win you know that he was very popular among the people um yeah. there you know i felt like there was kind of a, a love for him and his work so i don't know uh, but i can't remember i'm going to look it up quick to see who ended up winning that year actually because um i'm i'm curious I, i'm wondering if it was the year that uh, philip seymour hoffman won um oh maybe but um, what about what about um, Kevin Bacon in this movie? Oh, he's so phenomenal! And you know, listen, I um, I like Kevin Bacon. I don't necessarily follow his career. Uh-huh. Uh, I he's fine. I love him so much in this movie. He's just he's just the, the perfect combination of charismatics to the point where you're like so interested in what he's about it's so creepy just that undercurrent of creepiness and then it's like full-blown he's really great yeah yeah um just because i'm looking it up it was the year that philip seymour hoffman won for capote which that was that was gonna win no matter what that year that there was that was just one of those handed to him and actually if he hadn't won i think the the kind of second choice would have been joaquin phoenix and walk the line that johnny cash biopic was you know everybody was you know that year was saying well it's too bad that you know this happened the same year that philip seymour often played capote because they both should have won um so anyway yeah kevin bacon in this movie is so um i don't know he the the moments where the the things that are creepy i'm sure i'm get well i guess i shouldn't speak for you i don't want to say i'm sure but i'm guessing that um like the moments where he's watching Meryl Streep and not uh-huh. saying anything, like the most obviously the one where he's watching her bathe, uh, you know, right. that's super creepy. But actually one of my favorite moments of of Meryl's in the movie is the first time that he's watching her uh, where, you know, she's 
you know, she's not bathing or anything. She's just kind of sitting there daydreaming. In fact, she's humming. Do you remember the scene? And uh, and he no. he's just watching her. And then he uh, the reason that I love her it so much in that scene is because I find it really awkward sometimes. Um, you know, as an actor and as watching other actors do this, where you're supposed to be surprised because you know the actor is not actually surprised. And so there's there's always that thing of you feel them anticipating the thing that is supposed to surprise them. And Meryl's reaction to Kevin Bacon, because she's not supposed to notice him right away. And that's always the thing is you can tell if somebody's if if an actor is anticipating it because of where their eyes go. If it darts immediately to them instead of kind of being I don't know I don't really know how to explain this very well I know what you're talking about though I think I know what moment you're talking about she does such a beautiful job of not anticipating that moment and she does such a nice job of something distracts her um like she feels his eyes on her which is something that is true you know we've all experienced that where we just feel like somebody's watching us but her eyes don't immediately go to him. It isn't that like she knows exactly where Kevin Bacon is standing. She just senses something's weird. And so the way she looks is d- behind her at first. And yep. I don't know. It's just such a beautifully played moment. It's just so authentic because it just, it really rings as, oh, I've experienced that. And yeah. um, I don't know. I just love her in that moment. But he's so kind of still in those scenes. That's what's, you know. It's almost like he's just eerie. Yeah. Yeah. He's so confident in some moments. And then, you know, later in the movie, there are moments where he's very not confident. Um, So anyway, I I thought he was he was really good, too. I know I feel like this is one of those movies that he's really proud of. I feel like I've heard him talk about this movie before. And I'm sure as an actor, when you get to play opposite Meryl Streep, that's part of the reason why. But um, I think both of them were nominated for Golden Globes for this movie. Yeah. And you know you know what I love about his performance too? I should say this we're talking about his stillness in the moments where he's not confident. Um, and they are very few, but they're so they're in such striking contrast to this like person he puts forward. Like when he falls in the water and he's about to drown. Just a panicked hot mess. Uh-huh. And that like when he's like fear comes through and you're like, Oh, this guy's actually vulnerable. He has an Achilles. Right. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, on on another note, just because we were kind of talking about this with um, Kevin Costner a few minutes ago, uh, I've I have Kevin Bacon also has a band in real life. He and his brother are in a band called the Bacon Brothers. Do you know this? Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. They've actually they've been touring for I mean like over twenty years. I think they actually were a band. You know, even right when Kevin Bacon was like first starting to become famous, it's not a thing that is kind of coming up as he's getting bored later. They've been, you know, touring for years and years. And so I saw them a year or two ago, actually. And um, it was it was another one of those experiences where he's actually pretty good. You know, like he's he's surprisingly he's surprisingly good Um, and he's very charismatic on stage. But the thing that struck me as so funny, and I mean no disrespect to him whatsoever because I admire his work, 
but I happened to leave the venue. I was like the first one out the door when the show was done. And I happened to end up walking right next to him because it was that thing where he walked out the venue and out the side door to get to the tour bus immediately so that he wouldn't have to deal with signing autographs or whatever. And so I ended up, I didn't, I didn't even say anything to him because I knew what he was doing and I knew why he was walking so fast was because he didn't want to interact with people. But he had this, I, I wish I could replicate it. It's, it's too bad that this is a an audio only thing because I would love to do an impression of his walk. The only thing that I could, uh, it was it was like watching somebody on a catwalk. And the uh, the other thing that I could say is, if you've ever seen the movie Zoolander, it was it was like yeah. a Zoolander walk. It was insane the like swagger that this guy has in his like regular life. Oh, walk. he's got it on screen. Yeah, he is just, uh, but I mean, that's what it is, is I don't think it's an act. That's like, amazing. I, no, that's he, amazing. He has more. I noticed he had it in A Few Good Men, which is the last place you'd have that walk, right? And I was like, oh, that's how he actually walked. He's got <laughs> the weirdest <laughs> swagger, and it's like so over the top that you can't help but admire it. You're just, all right, Bacon, you know it, like, you, uh, I get it. You're a good looking dude. I get it, but like. <laughs> It is clear that you know that you are a good-looking dude, and you are just. <laughs> it was so, it was so oh shocking to to walk next to him. Um, in a, I, I've never had that experience of being shocked by somebody's walk before, but Kevin Bacon did that for me. That brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, what else have we got in this movie? Um, John C. Riley, like you said, in a in a very kind of I assume early role. I should look that up. It seems he's young in the whole you know in this movie and he, yeah, I will tell you it was my first exposure to John C. Riley. I, I'm sure every mine time too. I have seen him moving forward. I always think the first thing I think is that's the guy from the River Wall. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's astronomically famous and so successful and has made really like. Fantastic films. I'm just like that's the guy from River Wild. Yeah, because it left an impression. He's so creepy. Right. Well, and he's he's another one too, whose career is really so. He's just one of those people you never really think of as like, oh, what a great actor he is. Um, but he really is, and he's another one whose career is really, really varied. You know, he's really done. Yeah. He's really run the gamut. Um, yeah, this isn't his first movie. He was in some stuff beforehand. Um, he was in a, he was in a movie called We're No Angels with Sean Penn and Robert De Niro. Um, he was in Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise before this Hoffa with, with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito. What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Um, so I'm guessing kind of smaller roles. This seems like maybe the first somewhat significant role. And actually, do you know what movie was right after this one? I'll give you a hint. We've mentioned it in this episode. Dolores Claiborne um, was immediately... John C. Riley was in Dolores Claiborne? Uh, apparently, he played Constable Frank Stamshaw. Oh, I vaguely remember that. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to revisit that movie. That movie's sort of traumatizing, though. It is. That one is Ugh. harder to... If Based on what you said a little while ago, um, yeah, you might want to give that one a little bit of time, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And a couple couple movies after that is Boogie Nights. And I think that is kind of the first time that I remember really noticing him. And then he did, you know, other Paul Paul Thomas Anderson movies like Magnolia and 
The Perfect Storm, yeah. and then you know all of those movies. Oh, Gangs of New York, and Sh- Gangs of New York and Chicago. Remember that when he yep. was in in the same year he was in The Hours, Chicago, and Gangs of New York, which were like three of the biggest yeah. movies that year. What a big year yeah. that was for him. Crazy. All three yeah, of those. Huge. Yeah, and I think all three of those were nominated for Best Picture. What an awkward position to be in when you're nominated for three of the movies. What do you root for? <laughs> it really does show you how small like the upper echelon of the industry really is. Yeah. You know, I mean, the statistics of an actor being in three Oscar-nominated films. In the same year, yeah. Community. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked about one of mine. Do you have any uh, favorite uh, Meryl moments in this movie, favorite scenes in this movie? So many. I love it when she like, does their drills with them. Yeah. And she goes into like military mode. It's amazing. There were a couple moments really early on in the film that I just thought were so brilliant. Um, the first one is when um, she is in the bedroom with her two kids uh, packing and getting ready to go. Yep. And it was just so real. Like I could have been watching my sister pack for a trip with her two kids. Right. And that was the dynamic set up with those kids, which is so hard to do. Like, you know, kid, child actors, they have to be in the right environment to be that natural. Right. And they have to be working with somebody very special to be that natural. And they're completely capable of it, probably more so than adults. But you have to get them in the right environment with the right people. Right. And she did that so beautifully. Right. Um... And then the other moment I noticed that I loved is when David Strathern shows up and decides to come on a trip with them. Yeah. And um, he sits down and he's working on his drawing. And she looks at him. She's behind him. And she looks at him and she gets, she's getting ready to go over and talk to him. And she, like, fusses with her hair. Like, she's self-conscious in that moment about going and sitting down with her husband of I don't know how many years because... They have some tension, and it's this beautiful moment where you just see that she cares. Right. Right? She's like, oh, God, do I look okay? And she goes and sits down, and they end up having a, a fight. But really, their moments together, the two of them are really, really strong. Yeah. Well, and for me, I, I have two that I wanted to mention, too. And actually, one of them was the same as the first one that you were talking about, but the, the, the packing scene. Um, and I was I was gonna mention the the ease that she had with the kids and like how believable. Also, I was gonna mention the same thing actually, but also how natural those two kids were with each other because, um, yeah. you know, the Joseph Mazzello is in essentially the whole movie, but the little girl is really only in that one or two scenes. She doesn't go on the trip, so right. you know that little girl was on set for probably like one day, two days, you know. And yeah. so, like, you totally bought, not only was this Meryl's daughter, but, like, that kid's sister. Like, they had such a nice rapport. But the second half of that scene, you know, because Joseph Mazzello, the little the little kid, um, is saying, oh, dad's going to bail on this trip, you know. And then he walks in and he does bail on the trip. And, of course, he come, you know, he does end up coming along on it. But in that moment, he is bailing on the trip. And... Her reaction, you know, he's, he tells, or Mer- sorry, Meryl tells the kids, you know, go to your room, close the door, and don't listen. And, you know, she says, oh, you're not going to do this, not again. You know, that, yeah. just that frustration that comes, um, I don't know, from that place that, again, is so believable. And 
especially when you just juxtapose it with that like wildness of this the kids running around you know that whole scene just yep. is flows so nicely um i think other than the the scene that i mentioned earlier with her being um watched by kevin bacon my other favorite moment is very late in the movie uh when when kevin bacon and this is one of the big faults of the script which um we should talk about it uh I, I kind of don't buy the idea that, I don't know, I guess I shouldn't say that because there are, you hear about people doing incredibly stupid things all the time, but there seems to be something so strange about somebody who can't swim and is clearly terrified of the water insisting that they go um, to this, you know, go further than essentially they're capable of going, you know? I mean, like he had to suspect that they weren't going to make it, you know? Like he forces, right. he forces her to do this thing that everybody is saying is absolutely insane and he can't even swim. There's just something about that that just seems like there isn't anybody who's actually that stupid, right? But so the moment that I'm getting to, my, my favorite moment is when she's, when they're nearly there and she calmly says to him, you know, are you, are you still intent on continuing? And he says, yes. And she says, well, can Terry row then? I need a break. And she gets up and she, you know, keeps her face away from her husband and her kid. But she talks to Kevin Bacon and she just kind of lays it into him yes. for the first time. Yes. And she says... I know you think I'm bullshitting, but I cannot do this. You are going to drown. My family is going to drown. I'm not making this up. I cannot do this. And there's just so much raw emotion in there. I love that scene so much. And mostly just the way she articulates some of the lines. The way she says something like, I don't give a shit about you and you're nothing, you know, small town life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but just there's so much volatile hate in there. She's just finally done. You know, she was kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, he'd hit her husband. At that point, I think she still believed that uh, he had killed her husband, actually. Right. But, you know, I mean, there is so much there that it seems like that's the one moment where she kind of breaks towards him. And just I love that seen so much but um can we talk briefly about the script yeah this was not a great script there are some pretty heavy-handed um i don't know this it's so n- funny like some of it like 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 the scene the first scene at, at home the packing scene i think a lot of it is the actors right i mean down to even joseph mazzello who was so quiet wildly talented child actor. I mean, that kid is so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe it comes down to that. You know, those scenes can be hard to write. And I felt like, I felt like those scenes were great, but then you're right. Some of it is a little, a little heavy-handed. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of um, explaining to the audience what was happening, in particular, kind of early-ish, early to middle of the movie, where they couldn't find a way to express that they had killed Terry that, you know, um, that Kevin Bacon and John C. Riley had done off with their third. So they had to do this thing where, uh, she guesses it all. 
<laughs> she guesses it all, but also the um, yeah, that is a big thing actually that she guesses it all, but also that the dog smells it and there's like you can even hear the sound of like buzzing uh buzzing insects and the dog comes and it's this very tense scene because um david strathairn almost comes across you know he's trying to find where the dog is and the dog is digging where they clearly buried terry and he's about to discover that and all of a sudden john c Riley pops up behind i don't know i just felt like it was too um I don't know. It was that whole you don't trust your audience here kind of thing. Um, it was just too I telegraphed. I wonder if it's like a, if it was like a sign of the time, though. Yeah. Because if you look at other movies from that period, they are similarly blunt. Right. Like I think we're just a more nuanced, educated audience. Yeah. Well, these and it's days. it's a '90s thriller, so you know we should ex a little bit of that I'm just saying overall this there are some really weak moments in the script which there is yeah. a there is a rumor I don't know if it could be confirmed or not that um, well-known script doctor Carrie Fisher actually did a pass on this movie which is a nice um, oh interesting yeah considering how much we both love postcards from the edge uh, maybe yeah. there's maybe there's a reason we both love this movie so much too it might have been you know a little bit of the Carrie Fisher magic on it I will tell you that what I find devastating about this script, I mean, truly, like, I can't, I don't, I don't mind the Frank moment so much, maybe because I'm still living in, like, 90s nostalgia. It is heavy-handed, I agree with you. Yeah. But there are some other pretty clunky, definitely clunky moments, but I have to tell you, the worst moment of them all is, no, Wade, there was a way. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, really? Yeah. That's line you come up I can uh, right now right now in this moment I can think of five better lines I know than that line because it makes zero sense I know was exactly. there not a way before right exactly why why is there a way now <laughs> exactly exactly I'm a hundred percent with you on that you're exactly right that there was it just there's no context it those lines have to, it, it was like their, you know, yippee Kaye moment, you know, where they were just trying to get this, like, catchphrase in, but it had no connection to anything else in the movie. It's like, we need something for the trailer, Meryl. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm with you on that one. It was, the ending, it, it's kind of like a lot of thrillers end, where it's all a little bit too, I don't know, the the end confrontation is a little bit anticlimactic in the scheme of things just because it's a little bit too clean. Actually, um, I, I hate to sound like we're being critical of this movie because there's so much good, but I guess we've talked about a lot of positives too. I felt like oh, there was yeah. there was some pretty suspect fight choreography when, when Kevin Bacon <laughs> hits uh, David Strath there too. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Also, you know, uh, also, I really question David Strathairn's ability. So, like, partway through the movie, Wade tries to kill him. He jumps in the water, and he kind of runs away. And uh, uh, I really question David Strathairn's ability to traverse land at a speed faster than the boat going down the river. Right. <laughs> to get ahead of them. And also, I've always wondered this, even when I was little, you know, does the sign language charcoal drawing on the wood, that on the 
on the tree that's sort of sticking out. Right. And I always wondered how he got it quite so far out there. Yeah, that's a good question. I was like, well, it's like he's suspended in midair because that would be like right by the rock face, right. not out in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I always wonder that about people who are able to draw graffiti on overpasses. And I go, how did they do that? I like, did they yeah. hang over? How do they do that? Yeah, but, I must have hung over. It's yeah. fascinating to me. Yes. And actually... And also... Oh, go ahead. I guess he was an architect, so this explains it. But, like, I don't know about you, but if I was in the wilderness and found, like, old, um, it, you know, pulleys or whatever, I would be able to, like, I wouldn't be able to, like, share a contraption that would, like, lift a raft in the air. Right. Well, and that is one of those, like, moments of convenience that I'm talking about that seem a little yeah. too uh, convenient. The, you know, the, this magical equipment that he finds. And the other convenient thing you just referenced, which I'm glad you brought up, the whole sign language thing, when, when yeah. you're like oh, there's a reason that Meryl's father in this movie is magically deaf so that they all happen to know sign language. And that's the thing that allows them to secretly communicate. Because um, there couldn't be a reason that that wouldn't be tied in somehow. It's sort of the old, you know, joke. Well, it's not a joke. The Chekhov quote about, you know, if you introduce a gun in Act 1, you better use it in Act 3. And there are a couple of those, including the actual gun in this movie. But when that's introduced so early in this movie, you go, well, okay, so how is the, how is the sign language going to tie in here? <laughs> oh, oh, that's yeah. how. That's, that's how they're going to communicate to each other without anybody else knowing. That's kind of magical, I guess. Um, anyway, so... This, this movie, though, this movie sits with... There were several movies in the 90s that were just, just super solid entertainment. And... This is one, Last of the Mohicans, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Oh, God, I love that movie. A Few Good Men. Yeah. A Few Good Men, and honestly, it's still on the list for me. I still think it's fantastic cliffhanger. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I would add The Firm to that list, and there are a couple well, others. Oh, The Firm is definitely on that list. Yes. Most definitely. Which also has David Strathairn in it, by the way. Um, yes. Yeah. And the, you know what always amazed me, not to divert from The River Wild, but, you know, he plays Tom Cruise's brother, and he's supposed to be this, this like, jailbird guy who, who's in jail for manslaughter for a bar fight. And he seems so tall, I don't know, so prominent in the firm. And then I think, you know, I think he's a pretty slight stature kind of actor. Is he? Yeah, I, I guess I, I could never tell. But everybody looks tall yeah. next to Tom Cruise. That's true, but the, and on and Holly Hunter. So who they yeah. paired him with? I like. So he looks like a giant, and he pulls it off so well. And you're like, I just think you're brilliant. He's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I love this movie. I love this movie. This is, and it's such a fun um, entry in her catalog. Like there really is. Again, I would. I don't know. To me, the Manchurian Candidate is the only one that's kind of close in like style and yeah. feel. Um, but you know. This is her at her kind of like, this is her action hero moment. I still don't, I, I still say it's not impossible the way these movies are going that she will at some point do one of those Marvel movies that every other major actor is doing at some point, yeah, you know. rumor is Angelina Jolie's now joining. I know, I heard that. Joining the ranks. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, Redford did one, didn't he? Wasn't he in Captain America or something? 
Um, uh, maybe. I all these, uh-huh. you know, Annette Benning is in the is in Captain Marvel. I think Michael Douglas is in the Ant Man. You know, like it's it's yeah. Everybody's doing these. Anthony Hopkins it's was like in Thor. You know, yeah, that, like that. That that first that first group is about to say bye bye. Right. Yeah, yeah. Endgame. So yeah, I mean, you really you never know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and those are the kinds of movies that are being made right now. I guess even if it's not in the in the Marvel world, like that's just what's being made now. So you know, I I don't know. It, I guess it depends hey, on whether she wants to be I'm in it or not. It's totally made me think of this. So yesterday, this is cool news. So yesterday, I went to. Uh, I went to a, like, masterclass talk with Jason Blum, the producer uh-huh. uh, of Blumhouse Productions, and his economic model for producing films, and obviously he sticks to mostly the horror genre, but he produced Black Clansmen and Whiplash and uh, just some really interesting stuff. But, you know, his model, they're kind of set up like a small movie studio. Uh-huh. And so they do film super low budget. So they'll give a director $5 million, give them complete creative control, final cut. And they don't get paid unless the film does well. So they basically work on commission. And then they have a deal with uh, Universal, I think, for um, distribution. Don't quote me on that. And it was so fascinating to listen to him talk. I really, I am hopeful that he uh, is the first of his kind, although it, his model doesn't necessarily work for all genres, and that he is at least the sustaining life of the film industry beyond the film studios, which are churning out these, you know, sequels, prequels, remakes, Marvel movies. Uh-huh. Nice. So, yeah, it was very cool. So I'm going to talk about that in news. So I took a slight, a slight diversion, but I definitely want to talk about that on the podcast because he was fascinating i really was very impressed by him cool cool very cool yeah Uh, so where would this movie um sit in the kind of pantheon of 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 meryl movies for you i have have you found your list yet oh my god okay people please don't judge i have not found my list yet i'm like a terrible co-host i need to go find my list because i am now like getting backlogged like, I haven't ranked these films for, like, the last four recordings we've done. Um, this goes very high for me um, in terms of Meryl performances. Yeah, me too. Um, and then film-wise, I'd have to take a look because it's such a nostalgic favorite. It's probably pretty high. It's not, like, in the top five. It's definitely high, though. Okay. That seems fair. I actually, I did my list last time. Um and I'm kind of actually in the same boat as you. I actually, I I don't know. I looked for it briefly, but I don't know where I put that little piece of paper that I wrote everything down on. So I'm, I will find it by next time, I'm sure. But so I will I will add this one and the movie that we do next, um, next time. But I would say it does rank pretty highly uh, for me in terms of her performances. I'm, I don't know if it'll crack the top five, but it will probably be somewhere in that like six to ten range for me. Um, and in terms yeah. of movies, I'm guessing it's somewhere 
probably in the same realm, but a little bit lower, probably like 9, 10, somewhere in the like 8 to 12 range probably for movies. There are enough things that I love about this movie and there are enough things that are problematic about this movie that it's not a perfect movie. Um, And we don't need to pretend it is because we love the movie and it's fun and it doesn't need to be perfect. Action and, you know, thrillers are almost never perfect. You know, it's just not possible in that genre. So um, it can be a lot of fun without being like a perfect production. So, um, yeah. Anyway, Um, shall we continue on to our other segments or is there anything else you wanted to say about the movie? No, let's do it. All right, so let's see. You want to do the, uh, why don't we do the movies we wish Meryl was in category? Did you think of anything that you would have liked to seen her in? Oh, no, 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 no. No. No? I really haven't. Um, I did not think about that this time. Okay. Time around. Uh, what about you? Um, I have one. So it's one of those things where it, I'm kind of defaulting into thinking about, um, you know, the other great actresses, you know, Glenn Close, Jessica Lange, um, you know, there are a lot of them. I don't need to list them. Sissy Spacek, all sorts of other wonderful actresses. Yep. And thinking about the roles that they played, basically, and thinking what Meryl could have done. So, um, a- again, I-, I always feel like the probably unnecessary, but it still seems necessary to me default of this doesn't mean we want, we don't think the person who did it is not gifted and wonderful in their own way. So it's not a knock on the original actor. It's just, it it would be fun to see both versions basically. Um, So for me, Jessica Lange did this um, television production version of a streetcar named desire in the mid nineties. It was actually right after. Yeah. When she did it right. She was on Broadway playing that role. Blanche Dubois and they just made it like a TV movie of it. It was her and Alec Baldwin and Diane Lane and yeah. I think John yeah. Goodman. Um, I remember watching it. Yeah. I, th- I feel like it was kind of a big deal at the time. You know, it was one of those, there was this thing in the mid nineties where they were realizing that some like, you know, Broadway stuff could be adapted for, for television. They weren't making it into like feature movies, but I remember, um, Glenn Close did South Pacific, um, uh, that yeah, Mid- I remember that too. And Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bette Midler did Gypsy. Um, there were a couple other ones too where there was, you know, like these Broadway shows that they adapted into, again, television things. So, um, And it was usually after the actor or actress had actually done it on Broadway. And that was the case with this one. But I, I don't know. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fun to see Meryl Streep do Blanche Dubois? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, it would be great. So, um, our other segment is the uh, Six Degrees thing, which last time we said uh, Jack Lemon. Did you happen to think of any for Jack Lemon? No, I've been terrible. I was terrible about <laughs> our segments, Zach. That's you're, right. you're taking You're taking the full load of our segment. That's okay. Um, there's got to be a connection with Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? Yes. That was one of the ones that I wanted to talk about, actually, because, okay, I don't mean to interrupt, actually. What, what, no, that's not an interruption. It's a nice continuation of the thought. <laughs> okay. The thing that was, the first thought that I had was, and it was because I actually watched it fairly recently. There were a couple um, kind of classic ones that I watched. Um, uh, one of them was The Apartment with, with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. And of course, Shirley MacLaine is in Postcards from the Edge. So perfect. I love that movie so much. Yeah. So that's that's the first one that came to mind. But then Glenn Gary Glenn Ross did. And as I was thinking about it, I realized 
So Glengarry Glen Ross, for anybody who doesn't know, is is it seven salesmen? I mean, it's seven male actors or eight? I always yeah. forget. Seven or eight. Something like that. When it's done on stage, it's a really small cast. It's like seven, and as I'm sure will be shocking to anybody who knows David Mamet's work, it's all men. <laughs> and yeah. um, although there is, there's going to be an all-female version of Glengarry Glen Ross supposedly coming to Broadway this year. Did you Have you heard about that? You know what? Yes, I have heard rumblings about that. I haven't heard anything lately, though. I, I, as far as I know, it's still on. I feel like there was a thing. I don't know if it was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or if it was another Mammoth play, but I feel like there was something where they, it must have been that, where years ago they were doing that, where they were recasting it with women. And I feel like there was some hoopla, again, surprise, surprise, people not liking that. But I think everybody's, I think it's like, you know, gotten approval from everybody that needs to give approval Thank on you. it. Yes. So anyway, for anybody who doesn't know this show, it's usually seven seven or eight male actors and it's it's kind of a it's a really brutal play. It's very, very David Mamity. There's a lot of cursing in it. There's a lot of speeches in it. And it, it's probably best known, the film version, for the speech that Alec Baldwin gives. It's the always be closing thing, if you know what that is. But yeah. virtually all the other actors in this movie have a, like, a, you know, one connection to Meryl. So Al Pacino is in the movie. Uh, he did uh, Angels in America. Al- Alec Baldwin did It's Complicated. Alan Arkin was in uh, Rendition with Meryl. Ed Harris was in The Hours with Meryl. Kevin Spacey played the burglar in Heartburn. The (laughs) the only one who doesn't have like a one connection um, is Jonathan Price, who's actually one of my favorite actors too. He's another one who's kind of in the David Strathairn super underrated category, I think. However... Yeah. I think there is an interesting almost connection here because he was the male lead in the film version of Avita, that Andrew Lloyd Webber thing that they yeah. did in the mid nineties with Madonna. And it, I, we talked about this on one of our episodes. Meryl was allegedly very strongly gunning for that role. And there are some, okay. there are some quotes that, um, she had that were kind of uncharacteristic of Meryl saying she wanted to rip Madonna's throat out. And she was very upset that, you know, that they cast Madonna and didn't think that she was capable. And of course she was asked about it later and said, no, I never said that, you know, she denied all of it and um, thought, you know, she was complimentary of Madonna's performance. So anyway, there are a lot of rumors that, that, yeah, yeah. But there were a lot of rumors that Meryl was really gunning for that role in Evita, which would have been interesting at that point in her career. So um, there is yeah, an... I guess, you, I mean, you can't do a direct connection, but he's in the wife with Glenn close in evening with Meryl. Oh, yeah. I, there's there's plenty of like... Two, yeah, plenty of secondary... Secondary connections. Not yeah. Yeah. And there are tons, you know, if I look through Jack Lemon's um, category, in fact, I thought of a couple other ones earlier, but I think people get the point. You know, there, there are a, a number of connections that can be made with Jack Lemon just because he was, you know, he's older than her by 30 years, but, you know, they worked with a lot of the same people, of course. So, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, so who is our next Six Degrees person, Meryl? Mahershala Ali. Yeah. That'll be a little bit trickier one just because he has had more limited work than Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. 
You can always email us your uh, your picks at MerrillStreetPodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from people. Um, all right, so Meryl, what is our next movie? We decided to mix it up, and we're going to do Doubts. We're in the 2000s now, so. Yeah, so for anybody who's not a regular listener to our podcast, the way we typically go about movies, unless there's a specific reason for us to alter things, is to do 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and then back to the 70s. So uh, we just did a 90s movie. We're moving on to the 2000s, and uh, our choice is Doubt. We had a couple reasons for that, but uh, we just did a kind of a somewhat lighter one with The River Wild. So we're, we're taking it right back down with Doubt and going heavy again. <laughs> no shortage. Yeah. But this one is one that is, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Doubt, too. This is one that I feel like a lot of people, you know, her her third Academy Award for the Iron Lady, um, a lot of people feel like she should have won for Doubt. Um, you yeah. know, there was a lot of people who were kind of plugging for her that year. I feel like maybe that was the year that Sandra Bullock won. I don't know if that's true or not. We'll, we'll tell you next episode if I'm right about that but I think maybe that's part of the reason why because as good as she is and as kind of wonderful as she is I think a lot of people had some issues with that blindside movie um yeah but that might have been the Julie and Julia year I can't remember which was which but we're excited to we're excited to visit Doubt um one of the other reasons that we're doing Doubt is we noticed that it's on Netflix so it's an opportunity for people you know to find it fairly easily um, so hopefully you'll you'll revisit it and then come listen to us talk about it. Um, yep, and the River Wild is on Netflix too. If anyone is interested. Well, thanks for talking, Meryl. This was this was a fun one. I was excited about this one. Yeah, me too. We've we've I'm kind really. of we've kind of gotten some of our between Silkwood and this one. We've we've really had two like really like big ones for for me in a row here. So. Um, hopefully we don't have any sort of like <laughs> slide down into what's coming next, but, uh, there's, right. there's no bad mural movie, so we're in good shape. So, um, yeah. we'll be back as soon as we can, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye everyone. That's all.